Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com slash WNYC and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. What is something that your mom taught you that you didn't appreciate until later in life? Um, that's a good question because my life is not that long, but I guess to appreciate the time you have. To brush things off, there's this Japanese saying called shoganai, and it just means it can't be helped. And it used to really bother me, especially growing up in the US. It feels like everything is always in your control and that you should always be able to do something about anything, really. But I think the older I've gotten, the more empowering it's been to realize that sometimes you just need to shake things off. Patience. Patience is a big part of what she taught me. Very young, through your teenage years, your rebellious years, you really don't think that that'll come in handy. But in every aspect of life, patience is so necessary. And to be kind. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. So those are some good parental lessons, yeah? Patience is a virtue. Know how to let go of stuff you can't control. Be kind. The one I remember always hearing from my mom is don't follow the crowd, or I guess as she would have put it, if somebody's going to jump off a bridge, you're going to do it too? We, of course, learned many things from our parents, often the hard way. But for author Connie Wang, that exchange of wisdom has been uniquely complicated by the challenges of language and culture and her family's particular story as Chinese-American immigrants. Connie Wang is the former executive editor of Refinery29 and host of the YouTube documentary series Style Out There. She recently published her first book, Oh My Mother, A Memoir in Nine Adventures. In each of those adventures, Connie takes readers to a new place with her mother, China, Mexico, France, a strip show in Las Vegas, which more on that later, hopefully. Ultimately, though, this is a story about how to be okay with not belonging someplace and celebrating that fact as a triumph rather than feeling like it's a shortcoming. Connie, welcome to the show. Hi, it's so good to be here. Thanks for that intro. Uh, You're welcome. (laughs) So let's start with when you decided to write a book about your relationship with your mom. I gather that she was skeptical that uh, American readers, at least, would want to read a story like yours. Tell me about that reaction. Yeah, um, I was, um, like a lot of people, in the very beginning of the pandemic, um, sharing ways to pass the time with my mother. Um, (laughs) And we were exchanging a lot of books um, and book recommendations. And I was giving her a lot of uh, memoirs um, about the immigrant experience, um, not only because it was something I thought that she could find herself in, find some sort of kinship with, um, but also she was reading more and more English um, language books at the time. And I thought that this would be a great sort of entry point um, uh, into expanding her sort of repertoire into into books. And Mm -hmm. at a certain point, um, she accused me of trying to depress her to death. Oh, my. (laughs) 
<laughs> which I thought was like very classic my mom, if you know her. Um, you know, and it, it came from such a funny place because like I, I was recommending her these books that I really found I loved. I truly, truly loved. Um, and she she pointed out the fact that all of these books are so deeply sad at its core. And, mm. and, and, and she said something that really um, kept me awake at night. She said, um, but it makes sense because all people want to hear about from us immigrants is that we suffer. And that statement really shook me um, mm. because not to diminish those other stories um, and not to diminish my mother's sort of experience too, because her life, as I see it, is has been spent suffering over and over um, in ways, honestly, that uh, that let me and allow me to live a life that is kind of free of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was so interesting to hear her see and look back on her own life and see it as a series of adventures. Um, right. And so I challenged myself what would happen if I did the same, stepped into her shoes, saw our life as a series of adventures, and then lo and behold, there was a book at the end of that. What a wonderful provocation, you know? Like, can we not Can we not sit in trauma and think about, like, what is <laughs> what are our adventures together? What a wonderful provocation. Here's to your mom. Uh, I do think we need to understand some of your mother's immigration story to really grasp your lives together. Um, uh and she came, well, you you both came to the United States by accident, I gather. Explain that for me. What, yeah, for sure. How do so, we understand that? Yeah, it, what was supposed to be just a, a couple-year trip to come and visit my father, who was um, studying in the United States, um, more specifically studying in Nebraska, um, to get his PhD degree, um, and it was one. It was the one of the first few years that mainland China had sort of opened itself up to allow its student body to be able to travel abroad to get uh, graduate degrees um, mm-hmm. outside of China. Um, and the idea was that we get their degrees and bring that knowledge back to China in order to improve um, improve the country. And that was what the plan was. And so my mom was supposed to visit my dad um, while he was getting his degree in the University of Nebraska. Um, I was going to come over for a little bit of that. And then the idea was we would all go back to China. At the very end. Um, but while they were here, um, and before I even came, um, the events of Tiananmen Square occurred. Um, and, you know, out of solidarity, my, my dad joined a student protest in the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, um, at which his photo was taken. Um, and it was printed in, I think, like, page five. It was, like, within the local newspaper. Um, but what ended up happening was um, his family back in China was sent um, a, a clipping of that, of mm. his photo in the paper, um, anonymously. Uh, it was such an ambiguous kind of threat, but it is quite chilling to see that someone was paying attention and, and, the, and the threat was that um, you better keep an eye on your son. Um, he's up to something. Um, and the, the threat was so ambiguous that it was actually very, very clear um, what the message right. was. And so right. so they decided to stay. They sent for me. Um, and then what was supposed to be a very short-term trip, like my mom only packed one suitcase, I think. She didn't think that she was going to be staying for awfully long. Um, they, and they never got a chance to go back to China. We became um, full-time immigrants. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine that you, you, we, we won't linger in this trauma period, but that does, um, that is quite chilling. The idea of someone, uh, you're a student in Nebraska and somehow they're monitoring you. Um, I just wonder about that, that level of, um, did they expect that level of, of watching even from that far away? No, of course not. You know, mm. um, and and I think that from you know uh, how many years, like forty years out, um, we forget what it was like uh, to be in nineteen eighty nine pre social media. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also, like what Tiananmen Square was and what it meant for folks as it unfolded over the course of a few weeks. In the very beginning, it was really a peaceful demonstration of students who, for the first time, really felt galvanized to speak their minds and and and, and put action to some of the lessons that they had just been learning. Um, and they were really invigorated by this. And so, when he was doing his protests, it was quite peaceful. And then, of course, everything turned. Um, and you know, the tenor that those protests took on um, and the events of um, of June. It really made it very, um, very, you know, it was it was very, very chilling, um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know. And those protests became quite a turning point in China. So I don't think anyone in the very beginning of those protests quite understood what they were participating in, right. um, you know. And then that that's, would be a that's China for after. you. Yeah. yeah. In the introduction to your book, you write that your mother is quote the devil, both the devil and angel on my shoulders. 
What does that mean? What, what do you mean by that? Oh, she is uh, the voice in my head that tells me to watch it out and look behind my back and be terrified and scared um, of every single thing. And also the little fire beneath my butt that tells me like, you know, what are you waiting for? Just go do it already. (laughs) So uh, she plays, uh, she plays both sides of that coin um, in my head. And that becomes an important part of your of the growth in your relationship. And then just like one more table setter here is the title of the book. Um, oh, my mother. What does that mean? I, I gather that 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 phrase itself has meaning. Yes, Kai. So in Chinese, um, the, 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 the phrase that you say when you want to say, I think, actually, Instagram translates it to, oh, shit. Uh, but the most <laughs> common colloquialism is, uh, well, the Maya, which literally translates to, oh, my mother. But it really just means like, oh, my God. Like, it really just means, oh, my God. Um, but as I write in the book, I kind of like Chinese version better than, oh, my God, because the first person, the first entity I think of when I'm on the cusp of losing it or putting it all together is is my mom. Um, and I think that uh, these nine chapters that I write about in the book are are the oh, shit moments of our lives um, or the uh, oh, my, oh, my God moments of our lives. <laughs> We're, we're, we're on public radio here. Uh, but I, the, the, um, the oh my God moments and the devil and angel on my shoulders uh, really says a lot about, about this person that you have spent your life with and that you went on these adventures with. Um, so we're going to go on some of those adventures with you. What was it like writing this book together? Um, communication itself, um, just in the most basic sense, has been a challenge, correct? Yeah, Kai. Um, you know, I think this is probably a very common experience for a lot of first-generation immigrants in which you move to a new country and you are kind of learning not only the culture, but the, the language um, alongside your children. Um, and for a lot of families, I think that there is this sort of pressure to make sure that your, your kids are as fluent in your new home's language and culture as, as possible. And so you do everything possible in order to encourage them that way. So what ended up happening for myself sister and me, um, our English is so much stronger than our Chinese. Um, and so when it comes to communicating with, with my parents, like obviously their Chinese is so much stronger, um, than, than their English. Um, and so we, we have this very interesting dynamic in that we communicate with the, I would say like lesser 20% of our dominant language. So we Mm. can ensure that we understand one another. Um, and in writing this book, because it was over the pandemic, um, I had the, I was so lucky that my mom was able to stay with me, um, for, for many months on end. Um, and so in the process of writing each chapter, we had these very long, sometimes very frustrating conversations, um, about what we had remembered, what she had remembered, what we had misremembered about the same moments. Um, and we found overlaps. Or, you know, we, we actually found a lot of tension in places where we couldn't actually communicate or get on the same page. But knowing that the point of this was our relationship, but also the point of it was getting words on the page, we had to try again and again and again. Um, that process was not easy. It was quite excruciating <laughs> at moments, quite humiliating some parts. Uh, the Magic Mike one in particular uh, stands out as, as a quite a... Uh, a memorable <laughs> week in my life, um, not only when it happened, but when we were discussing it too. Um, but it was so worth it at the end of it. But the, yeah. the communication, the, the knowledge that we had to communicate and we had to try our best in order to understand one another um, is kind of a metaphor for our entire lives. I'm talking with Connie Wang about her debut book, Oh My Mother, A Memoir in Nine Adventures. It's the story of a mother-daughter relationship that has had to cross barriers of language and culture to arrive at a place of deeper understanding and for both of them to a place of comfort with not feeling like they have to fit in. And listeners, we're going to want to hear from you a little later in the show as well. Is there a moment in your childhood when you struggled with belonging in the place where you lived? What happened and who helped you through it? When we come back, We'll talk a little bit more with Connie about those family adventures, and we'll get her mom on the phone. Stay with us. Hi. My name's Regina, and I'm a producer with the show. You may remember that last year, we started the Notes from America Summer Playlist. We collected submissions from you, 
and curate a playlist that everyone could enjoy. Well, summer is here again, and I'm happy to announce we're launching our second summer playlist. A couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with the guys from a band called Wake Island. They talked about how music has become such a powerful outlet for identity, filling a need as they search for their place in the Arab American diaspora. So now it's your turn. What's a song that represents your personal diaspora story? Here's how to send us your response. Go to notesfromamerica.org and look for the record button to leave us a message. Start with your name and where you're recording from. Then tell us the name of that song, the artist, and a short story that goes along with it. Feel free to include a little bit about your background as well. Make it your own. And please make sure that your recording is at least a minute long. We'll gather all the songs and your stories in Spotify playlists that will drop regularly all summer long. All right, I think that's everything. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk, and I can't wait to hear from you. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking with author Connie Wang about her new book, Oh, My Mother, A Memoir in Nine Adventures. It's the story of a mother-daughter relationship that has had to cross barriers of language and culture and all kinds of other stuff to arrive at a place of deeper understanding. And Connie, a big part of this story is your journey with this idea of belonging or not belonging in, in the United States. Uh, tell me a bit about that for you. It's the driving idea throughout the adventures, and we're going to hear about some of those adventures. But just overall, set, get us started here with how you felt about fitting in or not as a kid and how that related to being Chinese-American. Yeah, of course, Kai. Um, you know, growing up, we um, I had a really idyllic childhood. Um, I predominantly grew up in Minnesota in a in, in a place called Eden Prairie. Um, and while it was safe and wonderful, I got the chance to explore and play outside with all my friends. You know, it was predominantly a white community. Um, and there were very, very few people who, who looked like me. Um, and I spent a lot of time consuming media, reading books, um, you know, watching TV, watching movies, um, attempting to find a place where I felt like, you know, I could be amongst people who looked like me, sounded like mm-hmm. me, had the same beliefs and the same interests as myself. I was a big daydreamer as a kid. <laughs> um, and then the knowledge that, you know, my family was displaced, um, you know, against their will in some senses. Um, and the knowledge that there might be a place out there where it could feel immediately like home was so intoxicating and so mm. alluring. Um, and the way that we get there was, was traveling. Um, and so that sort of hunt and that pursuit, um, mm-hmm. you know, diminished uh, year by year as I got older. And of course, like getting older and becoming an adult is understanding that those uh, fantasies you have doesn't necessarily trap with reality. And of course, saying these things to my mother, she would just look at me and be like, what are you talking about? Like, what a silly idea <laughs> that you can find a place where like you belong like that. You are right. part of a family. That's what belonging means. Right. And you said it was intoxicating um, to you as a kid. Um, so it was a preoccupation that there must be a place, you know, where like if I go there, suddenly, you know, the the skies will part um, and there will be like a plaque handed to me or something that says this is your place. Yeah, uh, to parade down the street, you know, and I, and I took a lot of cues actually from the books that I read and the mm-hmm. TV shows that I watched as a kid. You know, I knew that, you know, um, if you were having a really tough time, like the next chapter, that's when the adventure would really start. So I just had to wait, you know, um, oh, wow. if like you were, you know, if you were having a tough time at school or your parents are fighting or something like that, it was just about positioning yourself in the right way in order to get swept up into the adventure of your life. Um, and some of that stuff was very, very wrong course. Um, but uh, I really looked to media in order to sort of find myself and see myself reflected back at me. Um, you know, and, and in my personal journey, um, oftentimes that, that was such a red herring for me. Um, it yeah. was such a fool's errand. Right. Um, and that was something I learned. I learned. I quickly learned um, as I grew up. Well, you, as you write, you start to learn about um, not having to fit in through these nine adventures with your mom. Um one of those adventures where you started to learn this lesson uh, was involved your family's timeshare. 
Now, this is a controversial industry, but some folks may not be familiar with the concept of a timeshare. So explain what it is and how it works for people who don't know what a timeshare is. Let's start there. Yeah, uh, I will firstly say that timeshares are unnecessarily complicated, right? <laughs> it is, even to this, I like, I feel like I kind of understand what it is, but at the same time, I have absolutely no idea how it works as an industry. <laughs> but the idea of a timeshare is basically, I know, right? It's like an Airbnb that you are a stakeholder in, basically. You own a segment of time in a uh, in a piece of property that a lot of other people own a segment of time in. So, for instance, like if you and a couple of friends get together and buy a, uh, a home out in the country and each person gets a one season, that is essentially a timeshare. But if you could explode that out to thousands of people, uh, many hundreds of thousands of rooms, um, and oftentimes in very resort-like beachside communities, that's essentially what a timeshare is. Um, and so... You have points that you acquire as part of your timeshare program that you trade in for an amount of time. You know, you everyone knows what the peak holiday seasons are, uh, mm-hmm. and those are worth many more points than off-season uh, time. So it, it is property, and I'm using my quote, quotey fingers here, property <laughs> that you technically own, um, but you are still uh, sort of you're stuck in a situation where there's very, very little freedom in actually being able to make the choices that you want within a timeshare program. So your own family's timeshare, how did, how did you come to be in possession of this timeshare? You know, it's it's like a dream, Kati. Uh, <laughs> they went to the mall one day and they came back with a whole timeshare program. Um, and I, I asked them how much it cost. And the best that they can say is like, it's around $50,000. $50,000. $50,000. It's a huge sum of money today. It was a huger sum of money um, when we when we acquired it um, over a decade ago. Um, and, and at that time, I was I was in high school. That a sum of money didn't compute for me. I did not know what fifty thousand dollars meant, other than that it was just an outrageous sum of money. Um, and it was even more surreal for my sister and I at the, at that point because we didn't spend money on things that were fun. Um, we spent money on college educations. We spent money on food. Um, and self improvement things like playing the piano, like piano lessons and things like that. But besides mm-hmm. that, if there was not some sort of of a, of a educational value to it, like we were not Applebee's on the weekends, people. You know, we did not uh-huh. <laughs> we did uh-huh. not do things that were considered frivolous or extraneous. So when they came home with fifty thousand dollars worth of um, vacations that we were supposed to take in resorts by the beach. Um, I was I was genuinely worried that something had happened, um, and we like they they had lost it. <laughs> like like you were worried that something had happened to your parents that that led them to this. How, how did you yeah. react at the time? What did what did you say to them? Well, I was I mean I was in I was in high school. Um, selfishly, I was so excited to be able to go on a trip like this. I had only been hearing about yeah. this and seeing it on yeah. TV. Like this is like spring break. Of course, having to go with your parents on something like spring break was a little bit silly, but. You know, in the back of my mind, I, I was worried. The fact that they could go to a mall, talk to some guy who was running a kiosk in the very center of a mall, drop that amount of money and it'd be okay. I was like, there has to be strings attached. It was worrisome that I didn't know what those strings were, but it became more and more apparent as we started going on these trips. That the strings were that you can't. Tell us about the trip. Tell us about these trips. Yeah, so you would you would go on these trips. They were quite lovely in a very superficial sense. They were like they were advertised. You know, there was always a water park. There was big buffet settings. Um, there was lots of other families there. Rooms were comfortable. Things were nice. Um, but there was always this one sales event that you were obligated to attend in which uh, they would sort of like lure you in with a free breakfast. Um, and it was supposed to be like this gourmet breakfast and you'd bring the whole family and you would have to eat with this this random person in a suit. And this random person would try to convince you that you needed more points in order to be able to actually get the value out of this timeshare. And listening to this conversation as a, as a teenager and then as a college student and as a full-blown adult, um, this conversation that was oftentimes between my father um, and the sales agent that just made absolutely no sense. You know, things like, the points that you have are of no value. You have to trade them in for another set of points. There's no market that you can actually sell them in. But if you convert these points to a whatever, it still makes no sense to me. Um, but in my heart of hearts, I believe that there is something scammy about it. But the idea of really looking into it um, just it pains me because we're we're locked in. Um, the other thing about it is that 
around us, all the other patrons of these these timeshare programs are they they look like us. They are all um, for the most part immigrants, mm-hmm. um, and so and I and I wonder what it is about this demographic of people um, who for, for for whom rest and relaxation is such a compelling factor, but who are chose choosing this because of the ease, because of um, maybe the inability to to read the fine print, maybe because you know they are charmed by things like a man in a suit. Um, it 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 still fills me with a bit of dread. We learned how to dodge those sales breakfasts, by the way, eventually. Um, but for a few years, they were it was it was pretty brutal. <laughs> but at some point, you decided that this was a scam, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And how did you react? What did you do? Oh yeah, um, just it, tears, just crying, throwing a fit during these breakfasts, and there's something really uh, uh, quite visual about just uh, throwing a real tantrum in the middle of a churro breakfast um, <laughs> with the sun shining in through the windows, and everyone is in flip flops. You know, I'm like, I don't like this. Like, what are you doing? Like, this feels exploitative in some kind of way. I can't even explain because I don't understand the words that are being used now, Mm -hmm. Um, you know? Um, And I still, to this day, think that those very, very large mega timeshare programs prey on people who have a limited understanding of what... um, what it is and and what they're signing up for, but have a really, really deep sort of need and desire to rest um, Uh and relax. Uh So, so what was going on for your mom then? I mean, cause, cause she got upset with you, right? When you threw that tantrum, I guess, um, uh, which you thought was about protecting the family. Um, Mm -hmm. what, what was her response to you? You know, she said something that she still says to me, uh, to this day, uh, she has a really great, um, ability to look at the silver lining in things. And she's like, what are you complaining about? Like, we are on the beach, you know, we are on vacation and we're all together. We're safe. We're happy. You're a little sunburned. Um, what the, is there something that you're not getting out of this that you thought that we weren't paying for? Um, and she's, she's absolutely right. The thing that they wanted, the thing that they were signing when they signed the check was, the ability to get together as a family every single year and spend quality time together. And that's exactly what we got out of them. And so there was no scam in her eyes. There is no mm. scam in her eyes. The fact that we're locked into a certain amount of place, she's like, besides, it's besides the point. Um, what it really actually gave her was the idea that that rest and vacations and where you can actually just do nothing and when you can just enjoy yourself and be at peace um, was something that she deserved as a person and something that our family deserved. Um, and that sort of unlocked the, the the sort of idea for her and the, my family for the rest of, um, since that time, that like things can be valuable that ne- not necessarily were of educational value, you know, um, that we could do things that were fun and frivolous and they were worth it as well. Which was a new idea in your family, I guess. Um, and is that what made you conclude that include this story in one of your adventures? What is that? What you took from it? Well, it, uh, if, if I'm thinking about the uh, oh my god moments of my life um, and the well the Maya moments of our lives timeshares still to this day. I have trouble even, you know, uh, diving super deep into the idea of timeshares without feeling very emotional about that. And I thought that if that's the reaction that I have, um, I better confront it um, on the page. Well, let's hear your mother's side of this story. (laughs) Uh, I am very happy that we're going to call her up uh, and have her join the conversation as well. Uh, So Matthew is in the studio, uh, in the control room. Matthew, you can get uh, Chin Lee on the phone for us, please. I think we'll get her. Hello, Chin Lee. This is Kai Wright with Notes from America. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Thank you to remind me. So, Hi, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Kanye. I'm here. <laughs> I want to ask you about the timeshare. Um, $50,000 at a mall for a timeshare. What made you and your husband do this? Uh, actually, we stumbled at uh, information stand when we shopping at Edinburgh Mall, where the city we live. 
Uh, at that time, we are ready, although not actively looking for the better uh, family vacation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we attended another follow-up event, and I think they did great sales pitch. Uh, not that Mom, I'm shaking my head right now. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we had actually we had not much kind of experience, mm-hmm. uh, but variety of location along the warm ocean front in contrast to the cold Minnesota winters. Also, they showed us um, many, many, many that allowed choice of either doing some fall activities or doing nothing at all. (laughs) Also, by that time, we thought maybe that's investment. But, uh, yeah. (laughs) What? Can I ask you, so Connie pointed out to you, this feels like a scam, um, and you didn't care. And I think a lot of people would be like, why don't you care that it's a scam? Why didn't you care that it was a scam? Uh, Actually, honest, after the timeshare purchase, we actually experienced that the high quality vacation, the family vacation, we never experienced before. Each year, the timeshare, the points allowed us to have a, a family gather and as a tradition. Also, as immigrant. I'm sure there are many culture, language, and uh, society aspects I don't quite understand. The same as natives. For that, I I really think that timeshare, that resort, that community, that kind of type, actually, I like. So... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the money spent maybe that part that's 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 right. not good but right right yeah but when later the <laughs> immigrant families yeah yeah when when Connie told you she wanted to write a book about you um you told her that you didn't fit your life didn't fit into the narrative that Americans wanted to hear. Uh, why did you say that? Uh, honestly, I was surprised when <sighs> Connie said she wanted to write a book about me. Uh, I, I think people, they really do want to read immigrant the life up, down, blind mm. happiness or sadness story. Yeah. Not like mine. Not because like yours. My whole life I really think that I don't suffer. Actually that's a, I think pretty good. My life is simple but pretty good. <laughs> Chin, we have to take a little break, but I want to, I want you to stick around because I have one more question for you. I'm talking with journalist Connie Wang and her mom, Chin Lee, about Connie's new memoir, Oh My Mother, a memoir in nine adventures. And listeners, after the break, also I want to hear from you. Have you struggled with trying to fit in where you live? More of Connie Wang and your calls after a break. Stay with us. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex 
of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I am talking with author Connie Wang about her memoir, Oh My Mother, a memoir in nine adventures. It's the story of a mother-daughter relationship that has had to cross barriers of language and culture to arrive at a place of deeper understanding, and one in which Connie has grown comfortable with the idea of not fitting in, of not having to belong someplace. And I want to take your calls on the subject as well, of the subject of not fitting in. So is there a moment from your childhood, or really any time in your life, when you struggled with a sense of belonging? What happened, and who helped you come to terms with it? We're especially interested if someone in your family played a role in that journey. And I still have Connie's mom, Chin Lee, on the phone with us. Chin, are you still there? Yes. So, Chet, I want to ask you about this belonging question. Um, Connie told us earlier that when she was little, uh, she would she dreamed of being in some place where it was all for her, where she would just fit in perfectly, and that you found that ridiculous, <laughs> that idea. Do you remember that time and what just what you said to her or how you felt about about her need to belong someplace? Uh, you know, by that time, I I did not have job, and I don't have some kind of community to support me. So I really, as just for my perspective, I just want Connie to be. Uh, to be independent, to learn uh, whatever she needs to learn. Mm. To be just, in my thought, that's a Chinese tradition, that kind of female person. Maybe that's my dream. Go ahead. You know, it's like if I could jump in, because, um, you know, I actually don't think I have, I've asked you this question specifically, Mom, and it's interesting mm-hmm. to hear you say this, but I remember when the number one thing you would say to me when I was a kid and we would be out somewhere is stop looking at other people, because I was such a, a some, if you if you say it kindly, I was a curious child. Uh, <laughs> if you say it unkindly, it was a creepy child, uh, but I would... <laughs> constantly be staring at other families and my mom would be like stop looking stop looking what are you looking for you know um focus your attention on what's happening with your own family right now focus your attention on yourself and for me i think that 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 idea of like wanting desperately to see what was going on outside and if someone else had it better if someone else was mm-hmm. living a life that i wanted um and and that sort of motivation was in her eyes just like a it's a you know it's a weird pursuit you know mm-hmm. because the thing that gets you through this life, the thing that protects you from accidents or emergencies or unforeseen circumstances in your life, like accidentally getting stuck in a country you didn't mean to get stuck in, um, is the ability to be independent, whether that's financial independence, mm-hmm. social independence, just like your emotional, you know, in the, like your own independence. Um, but she was like, the, the, the idea of belonging comes secondary um, to, to the ability to be independent. Mm-hmm. Mom, do I, I don't know if I have that right or not, but... <laughs> that's 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 a lesson I've taken from you. That resonates with you, Chen? Yes, but yeah. how can I say that? From when Connie also was young, I'm I'm trying to learn from Connie. That's what, but the way she presents, sometimes I just feel, oh, Connie. That's kind of weird. That's what I thought you want to be. Just, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I always feel um struggle to to teach Connie something. That's really conversation between us. The very, yeah. uh, that's kind of yeah. weird. 
<laughs> well, I'm going to let you go on the weird idea. Um, <laughs> Chen. Chen Li is Connie Wang's mother, the subject of this book. And thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us on the phone, Chen. And Connie, um, we're going to take some calls here in a moment, but let me, because I've been teasing the Magic Mike story for some time now. <laughs> um, your mom is really into Magic Mike, uh, specifically Magic Mike XXL. How did that come to happen? You know, um, she watched it and she loved it. And every single time I would call her on the phone, she would talk about how charming Channing Tatum was, how good the dancing was. She would ask me questions about the the, the characters as if they were real people. Um, and of course, I had, I had seen Magic Mike XSL. I had seen Magic Mike, the first movie, um, which... If, if you've seen both of them, they're two very, very different movies. But the yeah. thing that the second movie XXL has going for it is that it is just like a boisterous, fun time. And I think it's just like a, it's a silly, very entertaining movie. Uh, uh, um, you could like it for prurient reasons. You could like it uh, for, you know, spectacular sort of like showmanship reasons. And I think, I think my mom likes it for the second reason. Um <laughs> But because we talked about it so, so long, um, I, I don't know why I did this, but I thought that I would like uh, maybe play a game of chicken with her. Um, and around that time, the the live show was debuting in Las Vegas, and I just offhandedly asked her if she would ever want to go, would ever consider going. And she saw my game of chicken. She met me there. And she said, yes, let's go. Um, and so... I got myself into a very unfortunate situation where I had to go to Magic Mike <laughs> Live with my mother. <laughs> and again, why why was this an important adventure in the sort of thinking about this question of of her trying to teach you? It's silly to want to be to, to this this longing to belong, uh, just be yourself. What what is it about this this adventure that was important in that lesson? Yeah, well, one thing is that she was sort of alone in her love for Magic Mike XXL within her friend group. She had actually tried organizing like a group theater trip um, to the Eden Prairie Mall uh, to go. Lots of things actually take place in the mall now that I'm thinking about it. Um, But she tried to organize a group trip to go see the movie and um, no one else enjoyed it like Ching enjoyed it. Um, And so that was one thing that set her apart. And I wanted her to to go somewhere where everyone was a fan of this franchise and everyone was having a good time and to show her she is not alone in her love for um this sort of like male review um and then the other thing about it too is like i just like i i was so curious what would happen if i went with my mom like this is something that is so not just i think uncomfortable for for me who have like a very like chinese american relationship with my mother but i think it'd be uncomfortable for a lot of mother-daughter um parents to go do something like this, right? Um, I just wanted to see if we could do it um, and what would happen if we did. This is this is me sort of blowing my own life up a little bit, I think. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, I confess to being a Magic Mike fan myself. Um, so I'm not mad at, at your mom here. Let's go to George in Chicago. George, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for calling in. So have you had a, did, did you have an experience where you struggled with the idea of fitting in and, um, and and who helped you through it? Um, yeah, I did. Uh, my parents came in uh, the early 1970s from Yugoslavia, but uh, my mom's uh, older sister came before her, and uh, she kind of grew a network of friends through her restaurant. And um, um, my parents were both doctors and worked a lot, didn't exactly create a big social life for themselves or for us. Um, but I remember going to my aunt's house uh, for a cookout one summer, and this was probably around 1982. I was probably around seven or eight years old. And uh, one of her American friends was there. And um, we were sitting around the dining room table, and I think we were playing cards. And she just kind of grabbed my cheeseburger off my plate <laughs> and said, I want to try that, and took a bite. Keep in mind that she was grown up. <laughs> I want to try that. She took a bite of my cheeseburger and said, yeah, that's a good cheeseburger. Put it back on my plate. And I was kind of flabbergasted. didn't know what to do. But it just kind of said, well, if she's eating from my cheeseburger on my plate without really asking if it's okay, then I must be fitting in enough with her. Oh, and wow. it just made me feel like, oh, okay, I'm, 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 I guess I'm part of the circle. This is totally okay. And well, because it, just it was stood an act out as of one intimacy. Of fundamental Absolutely. Like, it, it, you, how much more intimate can you get other than sharing 
an actual bit piece of food with somebody. I know, I know oh. it sounds totally weird, yeah. but it, it really made me feel included. That's so, wonderful. Thank you so much. For, thank you for that story. Let's go to Gary in Portland, Oregon. Gary, welcome to the show. Oh, hi. Thank you. What about you, Gary? Did you yes. have an experience where you were you were struggling to fit in where you lived and, and someone helped you oh. through it? Um, I certainly had an experience struggling to fit in. Um, I didn't have a lot of help getting through it. But um, I grew up on the south side of Chicago uh, in the 1960s, late 50s and throughout the 60s. Uh, so I was a child then. And um, the neighborhood was, in the beginning, like me. I was a, a white kid. It was lower middle class, predominantly Jewish families with children. And in the span of probably six years, um, white flight took place. Yeah. All the white families moved out. Um, black African-American families moved in and we, I was the last white child in my neighborhood. Um, I was one of the last white children in my school, uh, Bryn Mawr school, which, um, happened to be the, the school that Michelle Obama, I don't recall her maiden name, but she went there <laughs> as well, uh, was younger than me. And um, I, I experienced a great deal of racial violence. And it's something that I still am unable to process. It is not politically correct to say, you know, as a white person, as a white child, I experienced a great deal of black-on-white violence and racial bias. Um, my father owned a business in the area, so we were unable to move. Um, he hired blacks, whites, Asians, you know, whomever fit the bill. It was an auto parts warehouse. And, um, it was a real struggle. And Gary, what did you do to, 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 or were you able to find something to let yourself feel like you belonged there more? Um, um, what was your response? To I it? did my darndest to make friends, and I I had some black friends, but I I also learned some very tough lessons as a young black, I mean as a young white child. Um, I experienced my friends, my black friends, casually calling each other the N word, and you know it as a kid. You know, it's like, okay, that's what they call each other. So I use that word. Mm -hmm. And so you, you sure kick that ball real far or you can run real fast. And, and of course, you know, that did not work. Yeah. Um, well, Gary, I would, I'm going to yeah. stop you there. Um, but uh, I thank you for the story. Um, and I'm sorry that you didn't figure out how to, to come to a place where you could fit in. Um, let's go to one more before we come back uh, to Connie. Let's go to Dina in Brooklyn, I believe. Dina, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Hi. Um, do you want me to share my story? Yes, please. Well, when you were saying just about, you know, childhood and not fitting in, it reminded me I'm mixed blood. My mom is um, Mexican-American. My dad was German. Both my parents were first generation born here. So I really got a sense of both cultures. And um, growing in, up in a, a suburb of Chicago where it was mostly white and um, upper middle class, I remember the first time I was called um, names when I was called, um, I hate to say it, but when I was called a spick. And um, my brother didn't experience the same, you know, prejudice that I did. But um, and I didn't know who to turn to. I was I don't know why I didn't turn to my mom. Um, I don't know if she could have handled it. Uh, she didn't experience that growing up. And, you know, but it was different. She grew up in Chicago. And Dina, I'm sorry, just for time, I want to ask you to get just just quickly. Sure. What, so how did you adapt to that? What did you what, what did what did you do that put yourself? You know, I think I place? still am on a journey 
with it. Um, but I think it was really um, in my late 20s when I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area and I found my community. I also happen to be queer. I'm gay, but I didn't know that as a kid. Um, and I think once I found my people and I found that sense of belonging where I yeah. didn't have to worry about being judged or that I wasn't enough, yeah. um, I think that's, yeah, it's an ongoing journey because when you're mixed, you ne- you always like are on the margins. And I'm just going to stop you there for time, Dina, but thank you so much for that. And Connie, so that's a range of stories, some quite rooted in trauma. <laughs> um, well, yeah. uh, and, and some folks found their way and some folks didn't. As we wrap up, as someone who has thought a whole book's worth about how to find re- belonging, um, any reactions to those things or advice or thoughts you would leave people with on this journey of how do you find, figure out how to just claim not fitting in and being happy about it? Yeah, I think, uh, it, I mean, as a child in particular, uh, it can be really, really tough not feeling like you can be entirely comfortable anywhere. But I, I challenge people to think about what uh, benefits not feeling entirely comfortable can can give you, because what not belonging can mean is that there are so many different places that you do feel comfortable because that is what you know. And and to choose to find that belonging um, within people because people are not based on a geographic location. People are not based off of um, certain rules and cultural norms. People are with you despite um, any changes that you might undergo or any changes that they might undergo. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have a community of people who, who, who are family, who feel like family, um, that 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 not belonging can actually become a superpower. Um, I feel so comfortable in so many many places that many people would feel very uncomfortable because that is what I know. That is how I thrive, and that is that's what my life has been about. Because um, you've learned that, that skill set, you've learned that skill. I've learned set. that skill. I've learned room. that skill, and um, it's become it's become quite a, a benefit in my life. Wow. Connie Wang is the former executive editor of Refinery29 and host of the YouTube documentary series Style Out There. Her debut book was published this spring. It's called Oh My Mother, A Memoir in Nine Adventures. Connie, thanks so much for this time. Kai, this was so lovely. Thanks for having me on. And thanks again to your mom for calling in. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. Theme music by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando is our live engineer. Our team also includes Billy Estreen, Karen Frillman, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kushinavadar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>